The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Happy New Year, Church. Let's start off with a prayer to our Heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity for me to speak and testify of your goodness. I pray that our brothers and sisters here can see you and hear you as I testify of your goodness. May you be glorified, Lord. Amen. So although I have a wonderful relationship with some of you here at White Ridge Baptist Church, I'm here to share a bit of my story with those of you who don't know me. This testimony I'm calling names. My name is Jackie Chow. Some of you know me as Dr. Chow. Some of you know me as Jack. Some of you know me as the guy that sometimes greets at the front door over there. My parents call me Lo Fuzai. It means tiger son, because I was born in the year of the tiger, 1986. My younger sister calls me White Go. Go means brother, as I am older than her. My older brother, he calls me Wai Wai, because I'm younger than him. My full Chinese name is Zhao Zhen Wai, hence the Wai Wai for short. My last name is spelled C-H-O-U. I have been called Chow and Chu my whole life. My dad decided to say Chu when I was between 16 and 18, and then he switched back. I have an uncle that has our last name spelled C-H-O-W, another that's spelled T-C-H-O-U, and one that's a Ming. I could be a Ming. My family was called the Chinese family in the paw because there was only two Asian families up there until I was in high school. My hockey team called me Lettuce. We were stupid. We thought chu meant lettuce. It means cabbage in French. <laughs> in grade six, my closest friends realized that I was different. And they called me chink. And only one of those friends refused. Those same friends then turned on him too and called his, him names. But that's his testimony. Those names continued for almost a year. I am often called Jackie Chan because the name is very similar. In university, I was called a partier and sometimes a player. I was deeply lost and trying to fill a void. In breakdancing, they called me B-Boy Chili because while I was doing a backspin, the music stopped, and I farted. <laughs> In England, after university, uh, working as a medical secretary there, I was called the Canadian. After Europe, everyone called me a medical student. During medical training, one of the residents 
during rounds said some derogatory things about a Chinese patient in front of our group. I was the only Chinese medical student. His girlfriend tried to help, nudged him and said, shh, one of them is here. Nobody said anything to me as I put my head down. When I came to Christ, it was hard for my parents. My mom and my dad, they are not Christian. My mom confronted me and I told her, I am a Christian. My parents didn't call me anything at all for a while. This lasted a few years. Sharon, my wife, she calls me hubby. She calls me Jackie. She calls me Jack. She calls me my love. She calls me some other things that it's only between me and her. <laughs> Satan told me my name was liar, and I believed him. Satan told me my name was cheater, and I believed him. Satan told me my name was imposter, and I believed him. He told me my name was failure, and I believed him. He told me my name was unlovable, and I believed him. He told me my name was hypocrite, and I believed him. I hated my name for a long time. My name was tied with a lot of pain. But Jesus calls me forgiven, and I believe him. Jesus calls me his love, and I believe him. Jesus called me to come and see, and I saw him. Jesus calls me to serve him only, and I joyfully serve him. Jesus calls me by name, and I am known by him. Whatever anyone chooses to call me by, I want you to know that my name is known by the only one that matters, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 41.9, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. Isaiah 43.1, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. My brothers and sisters, your name is known by the only one that matters, Jesus Christ. This joy unspeakable is yours. Follow him who loves you, who knows you by name. Thank you.
Amen. Wow, those songs are precious this morning. Praise the Lord. Can you hear me? We're good? Okay. For uh, about 13 years now, I think it is, um, in this Sunday between Christmas and the New Year, we, we look at a, a, a psalm, a favorite psalm, and we've looked at about 13 of them now. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at Psalm 33. And um, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to it if you have a Bible, and um, we're going to be looking at it today. So Psalm 33, and um, if you are able to stand with me as I read the Word of God, would you do that now, and let's listen to the Word of God as it's read. Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea in a heap. He puts them in the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our shield and help. By our heart is our heart for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Would you remain standing for prayer? Heavenly Father, our gracious God, we thank you on this the very threshold of a new year that we can we can say yes to you. Lord, now we can, we can say, yes, you are our God. Even as you were David's God, we thank you that we can say, yes, you are our God and our hope is in you. And Lord, we're grateful for all of the future grace that awaits us in these next 365 days. The grace that we will depend on for strength and for the ability to take one step after another in faith and walk in the Spirit. It will all come from you. We look to you. And for the grace that is past and all that reservoir of grace that we have been swimming in all year, 
that is ours because you have been and are a faithful God. We thank you for the present grace that we sit in today. We thank you for in you we live and move and have our being. Be glorified, Lord, in each of our lives. In each of our meditations, have your way and direct our thoughts even as you direct water in riverbeds. Direct our thoughts toward the the, the things that you want us to think on this morning. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Well, every year when we do this, I review a little bit of just the generalities of the Psalms, and I'll do that again this morning briefly. The Psalms in their title is called a book of praises. We have 150 in our Bible, as you know, and they were uh, made up a songbook of praise for the nation of Israel. They were written by at least seven different authors over a period of probably 900 years. The first one that we know of written was by Moses, Psalm 90. And the last one was written, Psalm 126, was written by those who had come out of Babylon after their time in captivity and in exile. And many of them, about half of them, were written by King David or for King David. And so we have a lot of them today, and today's Psalm 33 is, is one of those. They're divided into five books, just like so much of the, the Scriptures repeats this pattern that we find in the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. We've been talking about Matthew, how it's divided into five discourses, because the, the authors often wanted to, to see that repetition. And many believe that in the book of Psalms, it is answering language. Because in the the law of God, God spoke, and in the Psalms, we respond. It's prayer language. And so we see so much of of our experience found there as we respond to God. Perhaps some of you did what I asked you to think about doing two weeks ago. You maybe went to YouTube and you saw the interview that Bono had with Eugene Peterson about the Psalms. And uh, he draws our attention to the utter honesty of every one of them, the psalmists, that uh, it's not a smooth, nice, pretty package of how life is lived down here below. It's raw. It's sometimes uncomfortable or ugly. And the vulnerability is is part of what honesty before God is, is what he asks of us. It's the only way we move forward in life is when we are honest with ourselves and with God. And, of course, David is one of the most honest men that we know of in the Scriptures. So many times in the life of David, we see this brutal honesty, like when he he danced naked before his whole nation. He didn't even care what people thought because he was giving glory to God. Or when his son Absalom was was killed, and and though he was an enemy at that moment, he still wept like, like a father. So many times we see David in raw honesty. John Calvin, the reformer, said that in the Psalms is the anatomy of all the parts of the human soul. So everything that you feel or experience is found there. Indeed it is, if you read them, and indeed they find their place in our hearts. Luther, the reformer, also said that it's, it's the favorite book of the saints because in there, every one of us find it uh, words appropriate to our circumstances. 
And I think uh, I share that sentiment, and I've shared in past years that the Psalms are often divided into three categories. And again, this might be a somewhat dangerous thing to do with art and poetry that is inspired by God, but a man by the name of Walter Brigham has done that, and he's divided them into psalms of orientation, psalms of disorientation, and psalms of new orientation. Psalms of orientation are psalms that are describing life as it should be, the satisfied soul, the well-being that we experience when God is on his throne, we see his grace in our lives, and we speak of joy in God's sovereignty. Blessed, for example, Psalm 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. You see, everything is in its place. God is in control. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. You see, these are orientation psalms. We need to return to them to recognize and remember what life's supposed to be like right? And then there's disorientation psalms. And that's when we've come through seasons of hurt, of alienation, of suffering, of death. They evoke experiences of rage, of resentment, of hatred, of self-pity. Things that once were okay are not okay anymore, and God can handle that. And so the psalmist writes of this not okayness, Psalm 5, give ear to my words, O Lord, and consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. Morning by morning I I lay my request before you. You hear the, the pain. Or Psalm 13 where we hear him say, Long, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long, O God? Psalm 13. And so there's clearly disorientation. Things are not well. And in my relationship with God, he wants to hear that. No sugarcoating. No faking it before God. No pretending. This is raw. This is real. It's called a lament. It's okay. And then there is, of course, new orientation psalms. Excuse me. When, by the grace of God, we are surprised at turning the corner. We are surprised at the work of God as the worshiper is overwhelmed with this new sense of hope this new sense of well-being. From the darkness, we open the door of light. From fear into peace. From loneliness into community. From bitterness to blessing. And the transformation evokes this, this gush of praise. And the psalmist writes, and his pen reveals that God has given me new hope. A reorientation 
takes place. Psalm 27, the Lord is my light and, and my salvation. Whom shall I feel, fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men assail me, it is they who will fall. There's new hope that's rising up. <clears throat> Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He put my feet on a rock and gave me a new song to sing. Many will fear, hear and fear and put their trust in God. There's new hope rising. And so I, I share with that with you because indeed the Psalms should be your regular diet. The Psalms should be the place that you go to on a daily basis. It's okay. I remember when I was a younger Christian, I remember when I had nobody, no, no plan of Bible in, intake, I would just say, okay, I guess I'll, what are you reading these days? I'm reading the Psalms. <clears throat> that was just the easy answer. That's okay. That's a good place to go. I think that <clears throat> In summary of these three categories of psalms, what I want to say is that there are psalms when everything is going well, there are psalms when everything is not going well, and there are psalms when you think that things might start to go well. Another person, Tony Evans, said this, you are either in a trial now, you've just come out of a trial, or you're getting ready to go into a trial. That's the way life is. And that's why you'll find in the experience of the Psalms everything you'll experience. Dr. Joseph Parker, a preacher many years ago, said, Preach to the suffering and you'll never lack a congregation, for there is a broken heart in every pew. Indeed, there is. Well, Psalm 33, if I were to categorize it according to Walter Brigham, I would say it's an orientation psalm, the first kind. It's the kind of psalm that is just saying, This is, folks, just, this just is. Sit in it, orient your lives to it, because this is true truth. This is the way it is. And it's believed to have been written by David, though there's not a title in our Bible. The Septuagint and some in the Qumran community have, uh, have given it to David. There are manuscripts with that. And he doesn't tell us what season of life he is in, like sometimes he does. There's no indication of what events have happened. He's just writing, and yet we see a, a settledness of praise. <clears throat> it's written a thousand years before Christ. <laughs> That's 3,000 years ago. And yet it is so incredibly describing true truth and universal truth that, that we can orient our lives to it just as David did. Whatever, whatever you're facing. Whatever the headlines are going to be in 2023, we can bank on this. This is true truth. And so I've called my sermon, Hoping in God uh, in Uncertain Times. <clears throat> and I'd like to share th four things from this really quickly. And I don't know if this is the right way to go about it. I've made it four things that progress through. But again, it all hangs together. First, I want to talk about a call for the upright to worship God alone. Secondly, a declaration of God's faithfulness and worth. Thirdly, an admonition to trust God alone and not this world. And finally, a pledge of the upright to hope together in God alone. I've put a praise, presence, perspective, and prayer. That really describes what David is leading us through in these verses. So let's start with a call for 
the upright to worship God. Like many hymns, they begin with a call to worship, a fanfare of praise. And it says in the scriptures that calls to worship are not befitting for everyone. You must be a worshiper if you're going to hear a call to worship. And that's why the psalmist, David, says in verse 1, Shout for joy in the Lord. Who? You righteous. Praise befits the upright. That's talking about the ones who believe in this God that we are worshiping. It befits us. For those of us who are born of God and believe that that connection with God has been fully made only through Jesus Christ, it befits us. It's our mother tongue. Praise is what we should have in our hearts. It's hard to keep quiet when you want to give praise to God. And so it just bursts out of David so many times as he sings in the Psalms. Perhaps you've felt the need sometimes to constrain yourself. Have you ever had that? You've been in a company that's mixed. You've been maybe over the holiday with some people that don't believe in this God that you believe in. They don't think much of the Bible. And you feel that you can't speak and just let your praise erupt like you saw an answer to prayer, but you can't share it because they don't believe you in this God. And so often that's the experience of us as believers. You see, praise only befits those who are believers. And James writes that every good and perfect gift comes down from God and we see it. We see it day by day if we're attentive and we want to give praise back to God. We want to give him glory. But sometimes we're in company that doesn't even want us to open our mouths on that stuff. Praise befits the upright. Musical Christians and those Christians who are less musical all still should have praise bubbling out of them. Whether they make joyful noises or shout, it's okay because praise befits you and I. And why is it that he is worthy? David goes on in the next section, verse 4 and following, to describe that. By the way, there's seven times in the Bible it says sing a new song, and six of them are in the Psalms. Sing a new song to the Lord. It's great that Kevin uh, brings us to new songs every so often just to freshly express praise to our God. The second thing in verse 4 I want to say is that there's a declaration here that David makes on behalf of his fellow believers of God's faithfulness and God's worth alone. Verse 4 declares God's presence and how they see God's presence everywhere, both his word and his work are done in faithfulness. In other words, everything God said and everything God has done is absolutely consistent with who God is. He is is trustworthy in this way. He's the God of righteousness and justice. Verse 5, the earth is full of his steadfast love. Verse 6, the heavens declare or made by the breath of his mouth. Verse 7, he gathered the waters. In light of these realities, what David is saying is it's only right that all the earth worship God. It's only right that all the inhabitants of this world acknowledge God. That's what he is saying. And it's the hope of David that they would. Let them, it says, let them fear the Lord and stand in awe of him, verse 8. Let them do that. Stand in awe of God. Do you know, 
This is a picture of the cathedral in Paris, Notre Dame, that was burned in March or April of 2020. I think actually Pastor Doug was in this building the day before. They haven't pinned it on him yet, but uh, <clears throat> he was over there visiting. Probably one of the last tours that was in that building. He, he was there. But the thing that's amazing is that I was reading about the architecture of this building. And this building, among dozens, hundreds maybe, of cathedrals in Europe, they served as this bastion, this monument for about 900 years of the, the presence of Christianity in the world, the mark of God through Jesus Christ in culture, in society. And, and how did it do so? Well, all these buildings were built so that when the worshiper stepped in the front door, all of the architecture and the spiraling of everything just took you up into transcendence. These buildings were built to make you and I feel small and everything airy and big and huge and upright in the building feels so big because they were trying to exalt the glory of God because it is only right that every inhabitant of the earth should fall down and worship God. That's what the designers wanted to have happen in buildings that were built in that era. And indeed, the destruction of this building is almost a symbol of the times that we are in now, where people do not want to bow down and worship the living God, and they want to make gods in their own image. There's a tension that we live with as Christians. David feels it in this psalm. The tension that we live with as Christians is that we have a lived experience we have a personal relationship with the living God. We share with him daily. He, we bring him into our deepest woes and our hardest, our aches. He's the only one that we know can know us and completely understand us. And yet, we can't, we can't let others around us fully into that experience. I don't know about you, but what it does for me is sometimes it's carried like a burden, and sometimes it's carried like an awkwardness in conversation, and sometimes it, it just comes out as real offensive, though you didn't mean to be offensive, and sometimes it just feels downright lonely, depending on who you're with, because they don't get it. They don't worship this God that we love. <clears throat> The psalmist here, David, is saying that all of the inhabitants of the earth should worship God. But you know that word should is a dirty word today. <clears throat> There's a book that uh, Brenda Noble lent me called Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. And she comments in the book that the word should has become a dirty word in the cultural moment that we're living in. She says if you do a Google search of the phrase should is a dirty word, you'll get to over 250,000 articles, podcasts, videos, blogs, etc., that remind you, us, of how we should ignore the shoulds of our lives and be true to yourself. And that is why should 
is a dirty word. Let me read to you one blogger that I found online that way. It says, I've been trying to think of a context in which that word should has a kind, benign, or even neutral connotation, but I can't come up with a single one. Even saying the word should creates a tightness in my throat, in my upper chest, as it, it reinforces this judgment on me. Yet in our culture, we use this word as a great, a great deal, often without thinking about how insane, how awful it is, how painfully it lands. And I want to say, grow up. I mean, like, should. The blog is called, not surprisingly, a la carte spirit. Yeah, that's fashionable, a la carte. You know, just pick and choose what you want to believe, what you want to desire in your little belief system. There's no room for shoulds in their vocabulary. The author, this book that I'm describing, talks about when she was parenting her, their young son. And at one point, their young son responded by saying, Mommy, don't say H-Y words. Don't say H-Y words. What's an H-Y word? You said, I'm going to have you clean your room today. Don't say H-Y words, have you. And don't say T-Y words either. I'm telling you, you're going to do it now. Don't say T-Y words. You see, that's should. And, and what they had to learn as they parented their son was not that they had to change their language so it wouldn't somehow offend him. What they had to do was help him recognize that it's okay to have an authority over you. In fact, it's a really, really good thing. God is a good God, and your parents have been placed over you by a good God. We're good parents, and it's okay. You need to actually have some of these H-Y-T-Y words given to you. But the vast majority of our culture is learning that somehow the presence of God is, is not what I should be responding to. In North America, God has been displaced by the supremacy of the self. So any talk of should is met with disdain and horror. Excuse the language, but how dare you should on me? Pardon the pun. It's, what, it's what's going on, folks. I've got a stack of books at home right now. I was going to bring them, but I thought, that's weird. weird. <clears throat> I've got a stack of books right now, five of them, I think. And, and the reason I bought them in the last six months is because I'm trying to equip myself to understand the times. I really am. I, I want the preaching of the Word <clears throat> to be relevant to the culture that we're living in. And I'm, I've got five books, and they're all saying the same things, folks. They're all saying the same things. They're all, they're all describing how the supremacy of, of the self is risen up, and the autonomy of the self has displaced God and authority. They're all saying that we should not be naive as Christians as to see things as political or social, but that we have to understand that underneath it is a new religion, a new religion that is exalting self. There's a, there's, a, there's a whole narrative going on in books, good Christian literature that's being written right now that's reminding us that the cultural moment that we're in right now is, is incredibly pivotal in all of history. We're seeing this newer secular humanistic religion 
writing checks that they cannot cash. They're saying this is the level of, of oughtness that we need to live by, the ethical standards. And yet all of the things that brought us up to that standard, the Judeo-Christian heritage of our culture, all that is being disassembled. All the foundation is being taken away. And yet the cancel culture and the, and the perfection culture that if you're in leadership especially is all being upheld. Nothing to support it. Nothing. It's an incredible moment we're in. I'm trying to understand the times. But the relevance of the Word of God, 3,000 years old, is clear. That unless we let God be God and put ourselves underneath His authority as we ought to be, it's going to all come tumbling down like the Cathedral of Notre Dame. It's going to burn. We need to go into 2023 recognizing that only God is our hope. Let's go on to the next point, number three. There's an admonition to trust God alone, not the world. This is a, a perspective point here. David says in verse 10 that he's taking it up to the next level. He proceeds to, to write about how God views the inhabitants of the earth. This is a heavenly perspective. We'll go right to verse 13. It says, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. What a perspective. David has taken us by the hand and he's lifted us up into the courts of heaven and he's saying, look down there. Look at the inhabitants of the earth. See what's going on from God's perspective. This is not just Psalm 121. I, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And so, that's not what, what David's doing here. David is saying, no, no, you're up in the courts of heaven looking down on the earth. And you're seeing things from God's perspective. And what does God say? This is what God sees, a divine perspective. Too often we get caught up in an earthly perspective where wrongs don't get righted, goods don't get reward, good doesn't get rewarded, where love is not reciprocated. We look at life and evil plans succeed and, and liars and deceivers get away with it and they don't get confronted. We, we look at an earthly perspective. God sees it from his perspective, the eternal view. He sees all. Verse 15, he sees and knows not only the deeds but the hearts. He sees when a good deed is done with an evil heart and he sees when something that is done with a good heart is judged as evil. <laughs> he, he sees it all. He just sees, folks right down to the core of every individual's being. Verse 16, he notches it up to the government level. He says the king is not saved by his great army. The warrior is not saved by his mighty strength. The war horse is a false hope. Then he says, behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. What is the message, folks? This is it. So what? What is the message we must internalize from Psalm 33 here? The message is stop, stop, stop thinking that politics is going to save you. Stop thinking that what we need is just a new prime minister 
or that we need a better justice system or more accountability or better government and so on. That might all be true. That might all be true. But that is not our hope. That is not our hope, folks. We hope in God. Verse 12, blessed is the nation, the people whose God is the Lord. Verse 18, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. He will deliver their soul and keep them alive. That's it. Not that my eyes are on God all the time because they're not, and neither are yours, but that God's eye is on me, that God's eye is on you. God's eye is on you. That shouldn't cause fear. That should cause incredible comfort. And then finally, this final verses of Psalm 33 is a pledge that I see David making on behalf of his faith community because you'll notice that in verse 20, 20, 21, and 22, there's the corporate, our soul, our heart, we trust, we hope. It's reminding us that hymns were written in the context of the community of faith, and we were meant to do Christian life in the community of faith. We don't do it alone. We are the church, the body of Christ, and individually we are often weak, often fragile, often vulnerable and tested. We often fall short and we sin and we need each other and we need our God to be our help and our shield. And so we want to make ourselves glad in him, trust in in his holy name and his steadfast love. Let me read to you how Eugene Peterson in the message translates verse 20 to 22. He says, we're depending on God. He's everything we need. What's more, our hearts brim with joy since we've taken for our own his holy name. So love us, God. God, love us with all you've got because that's what we're depending on. Isn't that good? You know, we're depending on God's love. That's what we're depending on. As we conclude this message on Psalm 33 and as we shift gears to come to the table of the Lord this morning, I just want to remind us that this table is the reminder of another event 2,000 years ago, the cross of Christ. And it's a reminder to, to look to God as the one who is the sustainer of your life. I want to read to you a verse from John 17, this prayer that Jesus gave the night before he was betrayed, the day before he was crucified. In John 17, verse 19, he said, for their sake, and he's referring to us, those who would believe in him, for their sake I consecrate or sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Jesus is saying the night before he was crucified, he is saying, I'm setting myself apart and he's going to the cross, that's what he meant, so that they who believe in me will be sanctified in truth. Jesus became our sin bearer so that we could be set apart to be the people who believe in him, who acknowledge him, who on this earth, regardless of uncertain times that we live through and regardless of the company that we keep and the people around us that do not acknowledge the God who is and was and always will be, we will believe in God 
And this table reminds us of what Christ did to make that secure forever and for always. Let's pray. And as we are praying, if you're at home and wanting to go and get ready to receive the Lord's Supper, to get bread and cup, and if you're here and want to go back to the back and get um, some of the communion elements, uh, you're welcome to do so. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we're reminded this morning of David's, David's praise of you, David's love of you. The community that David worshipped in was a church that, that loved you and wanted to follow you. And uh, Lord, we want to we wanna do that too. We want to acknowledge your kingship in our lives. And uh, Lord, we want to start this year right. And so would you be glorified in us? And as we get ready to prepare our hearts and ourselves for the, the table of the Lord, remind us of the price you paid for our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. I so appreciated Jack's testimony this morning. If you hear Jesus calling you this morning to come to the table, what is he calling you? I hope you hear him calling you friend. I think when we come to the table of the Lord, we we should be very conscious of how unworthy we are to come to the table to receive the reminders. But that, that awareness of our own sin doesn't prohibit us from coming. In fact, it is part of the call. I don't know if you've had a week or a day or two of somehow the curtain being drawn back on your own sin. It happens in conversations. It happens in relationship. It happens through times alone with God sometimes. But whatever God used to draw back the curtain and show you more of that ugliness that Psalms write about too in your heart, bring that, bring it to God. Because that's why Christ, that's why Christ came. That's why he calls you to the table. He says, come and be reminded that what I did at the cross was full and final. And that the love of God, like Kevin said earlier in our service, is so vast that it could never be, it could never be exhausted. That's what his love is for you. So I'm going to just lead us in prayer as we get ready to receive the cup and the bread. And I'm going to ask you to just bring your prayer to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you hear every heart right now. Here in this place and at home. And you hear every thought you see. As we've just read, you look down and you, you know our hearts and our deeds. And nothing can be hidden from you. And because we know you, we don't want to hide from you. So we bring our confession, Lord Jesus, how we have been blind to our own sin sometimes. 
how we have how we have been unkind or mean how we have indulged in self-pity how we have been so selfish how arrogant we've carried ourselves how self-righteous Lord we bring our confession We don't get condemned for that. Thank you, Lord. You call us friends. And so we receive your grace this morning in a fresh way. We thank you for your forgiveness. And Lord, where we have sinned against a brother or sister or someone else, we will go and we will make that right. Receive our prayer today of confession and hear our cry that we love you and we love what you have done and continue to do for us. Draw us close, we pray in Jesus' name. And thank you, Lord, for the bread and the cup this day that we receive as a reminder of your broken body and of your shed blood. In Christ we pray, amen. Would you take the wafer that's on the top of this cellophane thing that we are, Lord willing, one day going to get away from? But would you take the wafer and receive it now? This is the, represents the body of Christ broken for you, eat in remembrance of him. And the word of God says that in the same way after the supper, Jesus took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Let us also take this cup representing the blood of Jesus that was shed for our sins and let us be grateful. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, We proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. God bless you. My friend. Our Father, we sang earlier that the victories before us, for those victories we depend on you. And we affirm here this morning, we recognize together that this life isn't about us. It is not ultimately about us Uh, And the focus isn't on even the church. The focus and all of the glory is for Jesus Christ, your son, crucified and risen and interceding for us and exalted forever. And we trust and know, Lord, that in this year and in all the times to follow to the end of this age and into the eternity, in all of it, we know that there are going to be victories. And those victories are going to be about Jesus Christ being exalted. And we thank you, Lord, that you are allowing us to be part of that, to be part of a kingdom where we know that there's, there's victory. We, we are promised and know that Christ is going to be exalted and we are going to find our joy in him. I thank you that that's true. I thank you for each person here. I thank you for for drawing us to yourself. And for those who don't know the name of your son yet as a savior and as a friend, I pray that you you would knock on those doors and you would bring people closer to yourself. Lord, be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a wonderful day.